hello everyone and welcome to the Ramen Club podcast. Uh, today's special guest is none other than the awesome Shay Sampat, who at the ripe old age of 19 has already founded a couple of payments companies and is a senior software engineer at Vs, amongst other things, and also works at Fast. Yeah, looking forward to this Q&A. So yeah, how are you doing, Shay? Yeah, good, thanks. No, yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, all good, man. All good. Long time coming. So there's quite a lot of stuff we could talk about, I feel. But maybe the the first place to start before we get into, say, Superpay is just a bit more about your background. Like, how did you get into indie hacking, building products and stuff in the first place and at such a young age? Yeah, it started off, I'd always had somewhat of an interest in like computers in general. Like one of my like very early experiences to computers were maybe when I was like eight or nine. And when like when we had just bought like our, our like first home PC and it would like connect up to like the TV and we could play games on it and, and like we would watch movies via iTunes on it. And that always really did interest me. So then at my dad's company, this was Easter holidays when I was maybe 13, 14, I said, hey, can I come in and just help out? I didn't know how to help out, but it was just, hey, just let me just come and do something. So I said, yeah, sure. Like we have some like laptops that you can help like fix that were broken. I, I was before my age was, was pretty nifty with laptops at, at the time, like usually better than my parents. So I would always help out with stuff like that. So I started doing basic like IT support, helping out the like IT manager there just doing like basic stuff like even if I was asked to like fix fix the like screws on on like on a chair I was like yeah sure <laughs> and this um, is um, and then, at your dad's accountancy firm iHorizon right yeah and then that sort of carried on for like a short while and then I started to learn how to code at school and they had introduced us to Python and then that then really just quite amazed me I was like well this is insane so I just went home and for like a few solid weeks I spent every single day like before school during school, after school, just learning to program. This is just all in Python, really basic stuff. And then my, my first sort of proper, I, I say proper project, but my first project was like at school, they had put in this like new system that would like filter websites on all of the school computers. And we and then we couldn't play any games on it, uh, which is pretty common, like during lunch or during computer science lessons, uh, you would just have a games window open to the side and you'd be playing games while the teacher like, wasn't looking. Uh, well, they had brought in this new system that would block these like quite well, actually. So I said, oh, like it, it, it would be really cool if I could build something that, that could get around this. So my first like little project was this, it was like a, it was basically a glorified reverse that basically I would curate the like games and I like scrape them off the internet and then stick them in like an iframe. And then I'd, then I'd proxy that request through another server that was not connected to the like school's network. And then that is how we got around it. And I'd actually named the domain. I'd got this like free domain and I'd named it the school. And it was like enforgrammar.tk. And then that would be our games website. And it was very hard for them to block it because then they'd have to block keywords like the school's website name, uh, which obviously can't happen. But yeah, that, that was like my first like, like little project and actually worked. And like everyone in school was like using it. And then I was known as the guy that got everyone <laughs> their games back. <laughs> Oh, I love that. You must have been a legend at the school. But no, yeah, it, it, it definitely did. It definitely didn't put me in the good books with the IT technicians there. All oh, right. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I feel like this is like how a lot of entrepreneurs start by like hacking a system at a young age. And they take that like approach and just apply it to business world sort of thing. Was there any other sort of things that you like little workarounds and hacks like that you did at a young age? Yes. And then this was actually the one that like sparked Superpay. 
Um, yeah. It was at my dad's company and they were using PayPal at, at, at the time and PayPal was like giving them grief and was like withholding like thousands of pounds of, of funds for no good reason. Um, and I said, oh, what if it would be just really cool if we could just send our clients like a, a link and mm. then they just tell us how much they like want to pay and then it comes straight into our like bank account. And then I'd like just literally just searched online how to take payments online. And the first thing that came up with was like Stripe and it, they made it sound really easy. So I said, okay, surely this can't be that hard. So over the course of, I think it was like just two, three days, I just whipped up a really quick like Django website uh, that did exactly that. Our team would enter in an amount, would hit generate, and then would send the client a link and then the client could pay. And it was that simple. And then when, then I realized actually, okay, this is actually working. Like these guys are like finding it useful. What if other companies are going to find this useful? Then spent my Christmas holidays turning it into a slightly different version of the app where other companies could sign up. It still did the very basic, just enter an amount, we'll send it to them, they can pay. That, that, that was the only thing it did, but I just made it so other companies could then sign up. And then I had to teach myself a bunch of other things because suddenly it was like, I'm building an app that not has just got to work for one company, but it's got to support many other companies and those companies can't see each other's payments, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that was like the first thing that I like hacked together that actually was live in production that other people were using. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So it was originally something to help you out at iHorizon. And did you decide that you wanted to charge from that from day one or did it just, was that more natural, organic progression? No, from day one, it was charged like 1% okay. per transaction just because of how easy Stripe made it. Like Stripe's own docs was like, oh, if you want to take a transaction fee with this, just pass in the number one into this request and then you get paid. So it's like, let's just do that. Yeah. And uh, what would you say the elevator pitch is for, for Superpay? I, I have described it before as it's like creating a uh, checkout page built on top of Stripe without having to write a line of code, basically. Would you say that's right? Or would you say it's more than that as well? I would say it's more of a, it's a payments platform for small businesses. Yeah. It's aimed at the like non-technical user who maybe don't even have a website. Like a lot of our customers don't even have a website. They mm. maybe just have a Facebook page. Like that is that that is how they wow. verify with Stripe. They just have a Facebook page. So if you start throwing terms at them, like, oh, embed this in your website or create your product catalog and all like all, all of these types of stuff that for them, they just want to take a payment. Like they literally just want to log on, type like type in a customer, type in an amount, and then send then send it, then send them a link and that's it. Mm. And then everything else has just got to work. That is that was really from day one, sort of what I wanted Superpay to be. And that is definitely what it is today. Yeah, awesome. So how long since you started it and what stage is it now in terms of like users or revenue or whatever sort of metrics you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, so like from a metrics perspective, we have, I think we processed around like 15 million in GMV last year. G GMV gross merchandise volume is how much, like, how many payments that like, we have processed on behalf of our merchants. And then we take a one percent, and then we take like a one percent fee of that. Our MRR is harder to measure just because we don't charge any monthly recurring fees. It's just purely transactional. But like to give you an idea, like a few months ago, we were doing around 8K. Mm. Um, 8k in revenue per month and then in terms of like like profits wise like our costs are minimum it's literally just me um my sister and then we've got a, like a few like infrastructure tech costs family business i love it yeah and how did you grow 
to that level what were the kind of things that you found that that works and maybe that you tried and didn't work definitely i think one of the one of the main reasons why superpay worked was because we built on top of a trusted partner payments in itself is extremely sensitive most businesses are very risk averse when it comes to their payments so if we wanted to enter the market as almost like a white label like completely white labeling stripe and just being this magical payments platform that just made it work and we hid all of the stripe details behind closed closed doors i don't think we would have been anywhere near as successful as where we are now. And by building on top of that trusted partner, we got access to an entire ecosystem of customers and a marketplace that gave us validation, that gave us a sticker to put on our website that said, we like we are a verified partner. That was, that was like, I think one of the single biggest reasons why we got to this stage was because we were building on top of a trusted partner that really encouraged that like marketplace as opposed to if we tried to build on adn or braintree or checkout.com or any of the or any of the other payment processes where they don't have that level of gravitas around everyday businesses because uh, they they all aim at enterprise that is yeah that is really where i put down like where we get the most of our customers and why it works and, yeah. and why people trust us yeah no 100 percent, totally get that i'm curious how you think about platform risk so i guess with being on any marketplace there's huge benefits to it do you ever think about the kind of trade-offs or potential risk and this is not me saying like you should have done anything different of course not but i'm just wondering do you ever think about that in terms of say stripe building something that could be some kind of threat has for example has payment pages had any impact Mm -hmm. how do you think about this sort of thing no yeah like definitely like payment links has had an impact Mm. Um, in, in that customers that just come to us solely for that like payment link functionality who are maybe slightly above like not completely tech illiterate they'll be happy to use like stripe payment links uh, just because it is pretty straightforward and of course no yeah stripe is encroaching more and more into their like no code offering so what now we are like starting to do and like this is what i'm like actively working on now is moving away from just being a payments platform and moving more into the customer enablement side of things because like payment is just one part of the puzzle it's obviously a very important part but there are things that you can put like before and after it that add additional value so the before is like our customers don't have websites like they don't have somewhere, yeah, sure, they can hack something together on like Facebook pages, but for most of them, they just want somewhere to be able to display all of their products in one yeah. page and just it work. Like they just press add products and they type in their detail and they get everything like automatically generated for them. Or like the like after thing, like connecting to like various like different systems, like releasing digital goods. So there are things on both sides of the equation that we're now starting to focus more on as, as opposed to just that payments platform in the middle yeah got you yeah so taking the idea of like end-to-end payment solutions like a different level kind of thing starting from the website mm-hmm. all the way to am i right in saying all the way to the customer portal which is like your latest product yeah yeah so that's yeah for those who don't know what swart super portal is it's essentially so stripe also has a customer portal but one thing to note about it is you need to be able to write code to be able to actually integrate it and actually be able to authenticate your customers so what super portal does is it basically sits on top of your customer portal ingests all of your like stripe customers into our database and then we then give you a like page that you, that you can send any customer to 
they can enter in their email and, and we will authenticate them for you and sign them in, into their portal. So it takes the burden off you completely as managing access to this portal. And we do that all for you. This is actually a separate product to Super Portal, uh, to just because it sits in a slightly different category of users. These are users that have that, that use Stripe already in some shape or form, such as payment links. But, the, but then I've now found that, hold on, I don't actually have a way for these customers to update or manage their billing. Uh, so slightly different type of user, but still the same like fundamentals. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And I want to get on to something I will actually, I, I definitely also want to ask. So a lot of people in Indie Hacker community are quite interested in the new sort of Stripe app offering where you can build apps within the, the Stripe dashboard. I was just wondering if that's something that's built on Stripe a lot, like if you got any kind of initial impressions of it in terms of like its potential for bootstrappers to build on top of, or what do you think? Yeah, no, yeah, I was, yeah, I was actually really excited when that came out as well, because it very much, obviously it, it, it is a new product, so it doesn't have all of the like bells and whistles and it's still missing some like key functionality that like I think a lot of apps would like expect, but it's definitely going in the right direction. And Stripe is realizing that it's got a very strong like partner marketplace, why, like, why not bring them further into the Stripe experience? And, and, and I really do think that this is a really good for And it's going to enable like a whole like different class of apps, how they're going to monetize them, or if you even can mon like monetize Stripe apps. That is something that Stripe hasn't made clear mm. um, as of yet, yeah, as to how you can monetize these Stripe apps. It'll be interesting to see. I see these more as integrations. Yeah as opposed to standalone products. So for example, with Superpay, so we, let's say we decide to like get into like uh, digital goods. So like as soon as someone pays, we then release like an ebook or, or a PDF or we give them access to like course. I can definitely see the value in us building a Stripe app so that when you go into your customer in Stripe, we can show you all of the like, all of the digital goods that, that this customer's got access to. And you can like one click resend, or like you can one click upgrade them to like a new version or all these types of things that are actually an, an extension of your product, I think are really useful. Building an entire app or an entire product in Stripe apps, I think it'd be very hard, but no, yeah, I think they're definitely going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, got you. And so I want to get on to Supercharged, which is your latest invention. But um, before we get there, I'd like to touch a bit on your day job, like, because you also work, like you're not full time on Superpay. So yeah. You know, you worked originally at iHorizon, your your dad's accountancy company. I'm sure you also do some bits and pieces here and there. So you were there then at Fast, at the payments company, and also, and now you're at Veed. So what was Fast? Tell us about that story. What was Fast? Wow. Uh, Fast <laughs> was a very unique experience. It was amazing. It was genuinely on the inside, like one of the most like exciting, enthusiastic, like all of the like keywords that you associate with these like high growth startups and how everyone talks about, oh, like, like this is like the best place to work at. On the inside, it genuinely felt like it. Mm -hmm. Everyone there was truly like super excited, super duper ambitious and were truly like the world class of their industry. And the people that I got to work with there were like some of the best engineers and some of the best product managers and some of the best designers I'd ever like worked with or like actually met in person or even met over like video calls they were truly world class obviously the ending wasn't but there is apparently such thing as too much of a good thing <laughs> when it comes to people and companies 
Yeah, uh, we just had we, we we just had too many good people, and and then obviously the markets weren't too kind to us at that, at that time. So we got caught in a bit of a jam. And the short story is, we just ran out of money. That's literally it. Like we had customers, we had a really strong pipeline. We were like, actually our numbers were like like looking up in comparison. Like we were only two years old, but things were looking like really strong. But we just ran out of money. But no, yeah, my I, I learned a lot there definitely. For it's really weird. We went from like a scrappy had we went from a really scrappy company to actually what was becoming a very mature almost enterprise very quick like i saw this transition i was only there for 5 6 months but i could really see the dynamic between what like a scrappy startup looks like and then what does a mature enterprise or, or organization look like which is pretty unique and like what different like controls and peoples and departments and like what do processes look like at a 500 person company like how do you still ship fast how do you still improve your products and things don't grind to a halt that was pretty interesting and like how do you coordinate like a huge en- engineering or to actually deliver large scale products because things were actually moving internally, like even to the very last day, people were shipping stuff. And I think that definitely showed to the people there as well, like the level of professionalism and like really the like world-classness. Of what them. lessons do you find that you're applying the most from that experience? I imagine there's too many to mention, but is there any that you find like perhaps the most surprising or just that keep recurring sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Not everything at fast was perfect and it's harder it's harder to take the things that worked and then try to replicate them somewhere else only because the reason why those things worked was usually a combination of a dozen different things. It, it wasn't just one thing that, that went right and that they made this one right decision. So it's hard to take things that worked, but it's easier to take a look at things that didn't work, that failed completely. So one, ex- one example of this is that because we grew so quickly and we were hiring so many engineers and we were like growing our team really quickly, our processes didn't have time to catch up. Uh, like, I and like I, I was at the end of their last doubling cycle, and even then, our, our our processes didn't catch up to where we like needed it to be. And we and it it was coming increasingly hard to move the needle on things, uh, especially because we were like a microservices architecture. And then something that you would find is like each team had their own microservice and they owned it, but each microservice looked different. It looked like looked differently, worked differently, had it and had like different patterns and different idioms that actually, if you wanted to move teams or if you wanted to fix something in someone else's like service, because it impacted your service, you couldn't because it would feel like you were onboarding into, into a brand new company. So, and I think this is something that I think Vita is getting very right, is that we're keeping things simple, like from an architecture perspective and like from a technology perspective, simple is better always. And like only add complexity when you really need to, because the real cost of complexity is not the cost of implementation, it's the cost of maintenance. It's the cost of every time you're onboarding a new engineer, you now have to teach them another system, another process. So if you start, your code base from a high base of complexity the more people you add that complexity only compounds every time you add a new person uh, whereas if you started from a really low base of complexity as you add people it makes it much easier to onboard them and then slowly evolve your process so definitely that is like one of the things that i definitely learned from fast and it's good to see that we're doing it somewhat correctly at bead wow i'm learning a lot right now and um that kind of naturally takes us on to v so uh, why don't you tell everyone what you're doing at V? 
yeah so i work on the i work on the monetization team our job is basically everything payments of lead um so it's like everything from like that first customer interactions on the like pricing page into getting them on in, in, into like getting them into the app to like taking payment that if payment fails like how do we recover them churning dunning um upgrades downgrades like different like feature management stuff so certain users have got access to like certain things based on so based on like what they've paid uh, so anything that revolves around money that is like what our team like really focuses on me specifically i work on the so i'm currently building out our new payment service we're currently in the transition from a monolithic application so where everything in veed sound like one app to more of a microservices architecture i i call it microservices but it's more no it is it is but it's not it's very low in terms of complexity it's very low in, in complexity it's very simple to understand every service looks the same it's deployable really easy so that's definitely they they got service they got microservices really i think so i'm currently working on the transition of the payment service from our monolith into its new own dedicated service and that will allow us to move quicker ship faster and unlock cool things like pricing experimentation uh, so like one thing we just want to be able to do is let's say for 10% of the traffic in the US if we half the price do we get 60% more users if so that's that is something to consider so no yeah that is what i'm focusing on a bit yeah i'm a big um proponent of a pricing experiment experimentation and treating it like a, a feature like everything else that's amazing and i find from talking to Oh, by the way, for those that uh, aren't familiar with Veed, it's a video editing uh, browser-based tool. One of the co-founders is a long-time member, Saba, who's also a friend of the community. And uh, yeah, I'll be, but talking about payments generally with you and um, with Michael as well, who works at Go Cardless, who's in, in Ramen Club, it just sounds like such a fascinating space. I don't think a lot of people are aware of the amount of complexity under the surface with payment systems. From what I understand, you know, if it's like credit card based, like MasterCard or Visa, it's actually fairly standardized across the world and fairly simple. But when you're supposedly, when you're talking about like direct debits, for example, it's just different in every single country to know what's like, would you say that's accurate? Like what's your sort of general take when explaining pay, the payment systems to a layman? Well, yeah, payments, oh, if you can avoid it, don't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, really like, Payments on its own is an insane world. And no, yeah, what Michael said was completely right. No, like card payments come with the benefit of sitting on a card network, like Visa and MasterCard. They're pretty standardized. If you can accept a MasterCard in one part of the world, pretty easy to accept it in another part of the world. But when it comes to direct debits, every country, every bank almost in that country may even have their own like flavor of it. So no, yeah, it, it, it's a completely different ballpark. Most of, almost all of my experience is solely focused around like card payments. So I can speak like a little bit about it, but it would mind boggle some people as to how complex it is to actually put in your, to like put in your card onto a website and then to actually be charged and for that merchant to be paid. There are so many moving parts, like between every single, every, every time you like tap your card, there is at least four, five, six, up seven, eight, like different companies and different pieces of platforms and softwares and, and, and tools that is like in the middle of every single transaction. And I could talk for hours of the like complexity of, of payments, but it's, it's amazing that it works. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It is amazing that it works. And the only reason why it works is because we have no other option. We have to make it work. Absolutely. Because uh, if if we don't, like people don't get paid, money doesn't move around, everything kind of grinds to a halt. So we have no other option. We have to make it work. Yeah, you're doing God's work, Shay. 
we, we, all, <laughs> we all appreciate it yeah and with you've got you've got an important busy day job in fees you've got multiple other projects going on how do you balance all this stuff like you because i know you also have a social life it's not like you're a hermit like how do you go about doing getting all this stuff done that is a good question i'd like to be able to say that i have some insane methodology where I keep track of everything and, and then like everything always gets done on time. And no, it's not. Uh, my methodology is pretty simple. It's work on whatever is most important and will deliver the most value in the moment at any moment. That's it really. That is, that is literally it. I, I tried the whole to-do list and time boxing and the Pomodoro technique. And I've lost count of how many different things that I, I've tried to increase my productivity, but it always comes back to the same principle of just work on whatever's most important at that time and just do it and just get it done i think one thing i'm pretty good at is if something's hard that is not a reason for me that i put it off mm. um, i i don't put off things because i think it's hard or it's boring or it's going to take me six hours and i just, and I just have to sit there and do this really monotonous task i don't really care about that because it's got to get done but just for me it's whatever's most important and whatever can deliver the most value is what i work on is that more of an instinctive thing at this point? Or have you ever used any sort of frameworks to help you with that? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I have tried like quite a few different like techniques, but I found that they always, I don't know, I, I was always left unsatisfied mm. because I still knew in my head the like list of things that is most important that I actually need to get done. As opposed to trying to listen to a planner that I'd set at the beginning of the day or that I'm going to do this and that. Uh, and it's because I've got so many like different things going around me. I rarely am in control of what's most important. So when I'm not really in control of what's most important, it's hard for me to say, oh, I'm going to do this and this while also still doing what's most important. So I would happily change things up if something else, let's say I'm doing something for super pay and mm-hmm. I'm like in the, like, and I'm right in the like middle of it. And then something happens at V that's like, oh no, this thing's on fire. Or actually we really need to get this done this week. I mean, okay, fine, drop this, work on that. And then I'll come back to this later. So yeah, that's very much how I approach things. Yeah, one thing I like about Veed is they're um, accepting of people, uh, of, of, of hiring people who have side projects, which I actually think is an underrated advantage in the hiring market. Yeah. Some places are like, yeah, you can't do that. Or if you do that, we'll have ownership of it. And I think, some of them don't realize the amount of talent they're missing out on by doing this. Yeah. No, yeah. That was definitely like, that was like the first thing Sarah said to me uh, when he like called me, says, Shay, come, you can like, please like can continue working on Zupo while you're here. There is like no conflict. It's all good. Uh, whereas when I was at Fast, it was, unfortunately, we can't let you can continue working on it because mm-hmm. technically like their legal team classifies Superpay as like a, as like a competitor. Um, um, I'd like to be able to say that we outlasted a, billion dollar like a hundreds of million dollar company but <laughs> but no, yeah oh my god we were the ones still left standing yeah i love it i love it and so i'd love to talk a bit about your latest idea which is supercharged so you came up with it quite recently yeah why don't you tell everyone what that is and what stage you're at what the future holds yeah yeah, yeah. so just bear in mind like not everything's still fleshed out of course Tom- tomorrow might completely change my mind on the on the like overall direction of it Uh, but the underlying premise is something that I've like noticed both like when I was at iHorizon when I was at Bass now I'm at Veed a lot of us are still like reinventing like a lot of the core organizational problems 
when it comes to engineering orgs and engineering efficiency and productivity, velocity. And then I think where it really sits is like, how can we make engineers as, as efficient as possible? Because for most companies, engineers are the biggest cost center for most companies. It, it, it comes people. And then within that people group is engineers. So companies have a real in, in incentive to make sure that their engineers are efficient and are not like blocked and are not like wasting time on things that they probably shouldn't be or like, or it could be automated for them. So like one of my core beliefs is like the code review process. So like when you submit a PR and for those who don't know, like a PR is a pull request. So it's when you like want to merge your version of the code into the code base. So you've like made some new changes, you've like added a new feature and then it's going to get merged in. Before it gets merged in, most companies, basically every company has got a code review process and it's someone else has to review this code and they've got to add some comments and then you then action those comments and then it gets signed off. And I think the value of a code review of a really good code review process is heavily underrated in small to medium-sized engineering orgs. The big boys get like the Facebooks of the world, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, they really get this. They invest so much into building top tier code review processes. I think Google is like, as far as like publicly documented processes go, Google is probably one of the most well-known ones where they have an insane system when it comes to code review. Like it's magical. Like a code, like a engineer will just write their code will press submit as, 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 soon as, as soon as it's ready for review, they just hit that button and that is it. The system literally takes care of, of the rest in like selecting, okay, who is the most appropriate reviewer for this? They then have SLAs so that you aren't sitting there for days on this thing. When is this going to get reviewed? And it takes into account like holiday schedules and like capacity. Hey, like maybe this one person is really good at reviewing code and he is best suited for this but he's got 12 PRs. The second guy that is just as good as got one, let's then give it to him. Let's like balance the load. Mm. So, there, so, so, so there are all these things that actually big tech companies have worked out that the code review process is so important uh, for so many different reasons. Like it increases the quality, it coaches engineers, it gives real-time feedback to people as to how to develop their skills. Engineers are quite fortunate that we have this process that actually we can be continue every time we're adding new code to a system we can be learning new stuff and we can be developing our skills and we can be raising the bar in the engineering org so what i'm now looking at now at veed and what i like eventually now like want to build is how can we productize class code review processes like how can we make every engineering org how can we give the tools to every engineering org to have a world-class review process without having to build their own. Because let's face it, GitHub's is pretty rubbish. Like when it comes to actually the code review process, the actual process of doing the code review, it's, it's pretty good. But when it comes to actually selecting the reviewer or who is the right person to actually review this code or like how fast are we reviewing code? Like are PR sitting there for like days on end and people are like wondering like, when is this gonna get reviewed? Like when is this gonna get merged in? So it's about building the tooling for every engineering will have a world-class review process. That is the vision 
Yeah, that's the potential impact of that is just like immeasurable, and I find it fascinating. Yeah. And where would the, would you see this as some a tool that kind of you'd sign up and then you would plug in your GitLab or GitHub data? Would it have to sit on top of a source like that, or would there be other sources as well? How do you see it? Yeah, no, hundred percent. It would sit on top of your like existing infrastructure. Uh, there is no value in us rebuilding GitHub. There is no value in us sort of rebuilding GitHub's even code review system. Where I think the real like implementation lies is actually because the data is already there. Like most GitHub's are pretty, especially if you've got 20, 30, 40 engineers, the data is likely already there. Um, it's already in your commit history. We can pretty much already know who is the best reviewer for this code because it looks like John has been continuously working around this module for the last three months. Like John should likely take a look at this code. Uh, so the, the data is already there. It's just a case of ingesting it, understanding it, and then showing it in a way that is actually di digestible. Because if we give, if we try to send out, oh, here is your daily email summary of code reviews, that is rubbish. Uh, so it's like the data is already there. We just have to ingest it, understand it, and then give it back in a way that it's somewhat useful. But yeah, I, I was just going to say that, um, like, the reason why I think it's, I'm actually quite excited about this is just like how you said, actually, the impact can be huge. Like, we maybe have the potential here to, like, if we can increase the velocity of every company's en engineering, or even by one, two, five percent, that adds up. Yeah, it's massive. Every, every single tech company has got an engineering org. Most of them are using GitHub. This is not this is not a problem that is unique to any one industry. No. So. Yeah. So well, in some cool. ways, every industry is the tech industry now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have developed um, every major in, in industry now. No, no, yeah, 100%. Wow. So I'm sure the question everyone's thinking is when prototype? When prototype? <laughs> so yeah no very good question and that's actually something that i'm actually currently also working on at lead is like our code review process isn't perfect either uh, so actually something that i'm like working on now is like actually first of all i think i need to understand what does a world-class what does a world-class code review process actually look like in practice for a company of lead size v is not too unique from an engineering org perspective or like a workflow development perspective. So if I can get something working for like Veed, just Veed, then we'll take it from there. Okay, if it turns out that it's useless and it doesn't work, but I, I want to make it work for Veed first. Because that is what I did with iHorizon. Like I got the payments thing working just for iHorizon first. And then when I realized it worked there, I said, actually, you know what? This might be useful somewhere else as well. Yeah, that's a great way to test prototypes and building in a real company where it's needed. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, awesome. No, yeah. A couple more questions, and I think we can open up for some more audience questions. So a bit of a higher level, but just as an indie hacker or bootstrap or however you describe yourself, do you see people make, what are the common mistakes people making that you try to avoid yourself? Oh, thinking it's got to be perfect or even like thinking it's got to be like 90% there for it to, for like you to be able to like launch. I did this almost inadvertently with Superpay by accident. I'll give you an example. With Superpay, like the very first version, I didn't even know what GitHub was. I didn't even know what Git was. So when it came time to launching my app, it was just a case of dragging and dropping a folder into pythonanywhere.com, which is some online 
Python hosting service. And I literally just drag and drop the folder and then boom, it's live. Like the whole concept of like CICD and testing and Git management and all this stuff, that was completely foreign to me. Uh, so I, I didn't do it. And I think that's one of the reasons, like I launched Superpay in two weeks. Wow. And it was because like, it was nowhere near perfect. Like I didn't have a way for people to like, change their emails, change their names, change their passwords, none of that. Like it was literally, I was just looking at one screen of what I built for iHorizon, which again was very janky. I built it in like two days. And I was literally just copying it line for line into this new version that allowed from all for like other users. And then it wasn't until a few months into Supay where now actually I'm developing changes quicker and my desktop, because every time I did a new version, I just copy and paste the folder in my desktop. And then I'd call it like Superpay old. And then the next one would be super old and et cetera, et cetera. And then it got to the point where I was like four or five versions in. I was like, okay, surely there is a better way than this. <laughs> so then I, I looked at how do you deploy your code automatically or where do you host your code? And then I found GitHub and then I learned how to use that. And then, but then when it came time to deployment, it was the same, I still like drag and drop. So it was, so back to your like question, like the first, a common a com mistake that I see is, oh, it's got to be perfect from day one. Or it's got to have even the basics, like the whole thing about change your email, change, like change your passwords, update your name, update your profile picture. Just ignore all of it. Believe me, if someone wants to change their email, they'll just message you. <laughs> like no one is going to leave. No one's not going to sign up to your product because they couldn't change your email, change their email in their settings page. Yeah. Gotcha. And um, is there anything you would have done differently in hindsight with Superpay? Mm, yes. Yes, that's something I did last year. Last year, we were approached by Square to build an integration with them. And they came to us and say, hey, like we don't have a recurring payments product. We really like what, what you're doing with like Superpay. We are trying to launch our own like marketplace with a recurring payments partner. We would love to partner with you. And then at the time, that's, that, that sounded really exciting. Square has got, I don't know how many millions of, of merchants, but they're big. And it was really exciting. And then I spent all this time for this integration and it was super hands-on. Like I was working like directly with their subscriptions engineering team because they hadn't even built out the, the like docs yet. I was just using the docs from like a PDF that some guy had wrote. And then I, I built it, built it, built it, deployed it, fixed it. And then we then went live with it. And it was just a complete failure. Like I, I, I completely misunderstood the type of customers that Square customers. Fundamentally, they're physical businesses. Most of their customers use their point of sale, de use their point of sale devices. So when they're asking for recurring payments and so and so and subscriptions, they aren't asking it for online. They're asking it for in person. And fundamentally, that just that's not how we operate. Like it's a completely different type of product, completely different type of like business model. And yeah. Sure, sorry, is the, the, the whole Square integration failed. I spent six months building it in, in like planning, reviewing, testing, because then they then had to do like a final QA. I spent, invested all this time and effort and then it failed. So yeah, the like lesson learned from there was like, when you're going to do something as big as build for another partner, really understand their customers and make sure that, because that's not what I did. I, I, I just thought, oh, wow, there's, Square is huge. We're going to get so many more customers. It's going to be beautiful. Uh, but I, I fail to understand the type of customer Square are. Yeah, totally feel you there. I think it's very applicable for uh, all sorts of founders. And so, yeah, thank you, Shay. I'm going to pick a few questions out of um, the chat now. Anyone that has questions, just feel free to get them in. First one from uh, William. 
So what are your main traction channels for the different products and what is your traction like now? I know you touched on that Stripe earlier as a marketplace pushes a lot of users towards you, but like what percentage of your traction comes from that and what are the other kind of sources? Mm -hmm. For Superpay, the vast majority comes from still the Square Marketplace, uh, but actually we're, we are now finding more and more actually come from users that have checked out through Superpay before and then have then gone on to then sign up and then use it. One, one really specific place where this happened was uh, for, for some reason we seem to have a monopoly on in this like north of ireland there is like a cluster of eight nine ten rugby clubs in this like one city and we seem to have a monopoly on all of them all of them used to pay for their memberships and so we process like the recurring payments for like, i think it's eight nine thousand members every single week we're, we're processing payments for, like eight nine thousand members in this like one town in ireland and that actually all started just because one of them used us and then the other one realized that oh that club's using that that is really cool let's sign up to that and that just went round and round and round so word of mouth is another big one for us as well awesome thanks shay um so question for Matt, what are your thoughts on how much crypto will disrupt uh, traditional uh, rail payments methods, or do you think it's not a viable technology for payment? Yeah, I've thought about this one a lot. Coming straight from fast. Um, so really, there are like a few different types of, when it comes to payments, you do have some big segments. I'll focus on e-commerce just because that's the one that I'm most familiar with just coming from fast. I don't think crypto will rapidly derail or disrupt the e-commerce payments for one main reason. Because right now, centralization is at the core of e-commerce when it comes to payments. The only reason why e-commerce works and someone on one side of the world is willing to pay for something on the other side of the world and trust that, that they're going to get it is because they are protected. And they know that. Consumers know that if they buy something online and they don't get it, they can do a chargeback. They just go to their bank and they say, hey, like I ordered green slippers and I got pink fluffy like, uh, slippers. And the bank will say, okay, uh, show us some proof and then we'll give you your money back. That doesn't happen we're, 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 with crypto. It's trustless by nature. And that doesn't really, fundamentally, that doesn't align with e-commerce and, uh, and it's like principles where trust is almost at the core of e-commerce. You have to trust this merchant that if you give them your money, that they are, they are going to give you what you ask in return. And But there's no guarantees when it comes to crypto. So, hey, maybe someone will design like the chargeback version for crypto payments. Then maybe. Then maybe. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very relevant uh, topic at the moment. Question from James. So for the low tech customers, like uh, the ones that only have a Facebook page who just want something that works, how did you get them to talk to you and give feedback so you knew how to iterate for them? And was this a challenge? Yeah, so something we did from the, I'd say three months to three, three, three months into like, like launching, uh, something I did straight away was I put up a banner on the dashboard. So as part of the onboarding flow, it was pop up and say, hey, uh, do you want to book in a 3.30 minute concierge onboarding call? Like I, I made it sound really fancy. And then I said, hey, you will get to speak to someone from our like customer success team and they're going to help you set up Superpay just right for you. A lot of customers chose this uh, just because of how non-technical they were. And what I would do is I, I literally jump on a half an hour call with, like, call with them. I'd ask them about their business, about what they want to do. And I would go into their dashboard and I would set up 
what they needed for it. And, and I teach them how to use it to now do what they wanted to, to do. And then in return, I, I got to ask some questions along the way. I never made it like, oh, thank you for now completing the onboarding. Here are five questions that I want to ask you. It was like I had five, six questions that I knew I wanted to ask and I would weave them in through the conversation uh, to make it seem like a lot more natural. And yeah, they always left really happy. And actually we found that those users were always our like highest retention users. Like we still have users from years and two years ago that still actively use us day to day to day. And they were the ones that if you look back, they, those were the ones that are like personally onboarded. So no, yeah, personally onboarding customers. Love it. Any other questions just before we wrap up? Going once, going twice. From William, so how many hours do you work a week and do you have a team? Just on Sufi or across everything? Uh, William, <laughs> do you want to reply? Oh, across everything. Oh, actually, now I don't even know. Uh, it feels pretty constant, basically almost 24 seven. I get, I get up at nine and I'll work until six, seven. If I've got something in the evening, I'll, I'll go. And then if I'm not doing anything in the evening, I'll continue working then. And I pretty much do that all day, every day. Do I have a team? No, it's just actually, I've got my sister who does customer support for Zoopay. She is legendary. If you're looking for another customer support agent, can give you a contact details, but she, she does like a few hours a day for us and helps me stay accountable to answering customers for questions. What about, um, are you ever afraid of burnout? It's, it's crossed my mind a few times, but I've been doing this for this sort of same pace for three, four years now. And I don't know, I'm not afraid of it because I don't know what it feels like. I've heard of it. Like I've, I've heard of people like really burning out and it's like catastrophic for them and they like need to move jobs or, the, or they need to take a six week sabbatical just to recharge. I think for me, something that I do out, outside of work because I think having something outside of work is super, super important. Like some completely different to what you do day, day to day is I go martial arts twice a week. And it's an hour and a half on a Tuesday and a Wednesday evening. And those three, four, some, sometimes four hours a week are, for me, super duper important. Helps set everything else into, it can sometimes be quite easy to like get lost in work and think, oh no, like what I'm doing is really stressful or I've got deadlines or I've got four different people asking for like four different things that they all wanted like yesterday. That can sometimes seem quite stressful. Uh, but then whenever I go to those classes and I, I don't know, I've got someone like sitting on my head, and, like twisting my arm and digging their like thumb into the side of my head, I think actually no, that is stressful. <laughs> that hurts. This isn't. So for me, what the way I'm working now is I'm quite happy. So yeah. And I, I, and I think a lot of that is just down to, cause I have quite a few things that I do outside. Like trying to say I'm pretty sociable. If you tell me, Hey, do you want to go grab a drink today? I'll probably say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably say yes. Love it, man. And I think final question. So from Ostat, was it hard to become a strike partner? Surprisingly, no, it, it, it wasn't too hard. No, it was hard. Actually, I, I was going to say it was hard to build it, but even then that, that wasn't hard. So no, it wasn't too hard to, to become a strike partner. It cost, you paid like a $250 fee, one-time fee. They would review your application and then you would either be approved or denied. We actually got denied first time. This might be a story for an, another day, but when Supay was getting started, they actually banned our account like two weeks in because they thought that we were some, we thought we were trying to build like a Stripe on, on top of Stripe and they didn't like that. 
And even though we try to tell them, oh, actually, no, we're building it through Stripe Connect, that then they chilled out. But yeah, like this was like into two weeks into launching, we had a few customers, we were doing like a few hundred dollars a day in, and then we got kicked off and then everything ground to a halt. And I'm freaking out. I was like, oh no, my business has died. <laughs> uh, but then we like luckily got to reach out to Stripe and they're really apologetic about it. And actually that was probably the start of actually quite a strong relationship with like me and Stripe. Yeah. Awesome. And so final question from William, what do you think is the future of payments? So many global markets are not credit card friendly and have uh, alternate payment methods like UPI in India, Alipay in China, Valeta in Brazil. Just wondering how you think that it will evolve in future. Yeah, no, APMs are like a whole different ballpark. APMs um, or alternative payment methods. So this is actually something that we're now starting to explore at Bead. It's a completely different ballpark. I don't think we'll see any kind of consolidation anytime soon like each market is completely different and like for example in indonesia they have 12 different apms wow. uh, but everyone's got like tiny market share like they have no they have no market dom- dominated there like all those 12 companies or like 15 20 they've all got like a slither of the market share so just in indonesia alone you've got like 15 companies all competing and they've all got a tiny share so there's no consolidation there you just got to accept them all or accept none or choose to accept one or two. But yeah, I think Stripe will play a huge role in becoming the middleware on top of all this complexity. It's what they've been doing from day one and it's what they're still chipping away at. So there is no value in Bead building in, in integrations, direct integrations into in, 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 into like 12 different APMs like a, in like different markets. There's very little value for us. But for Stripe, huge value for them and if they can make it as easy for us as just to click a toggle like dash in or like our stripe checkout to suddenly accept a whole new market of apms then obviously we're we are going to do that if they've made it so easy why not take it why not take advantage of that so yeah it's gonna be hard to say the finance world has always been super fragmented there's never been one clear market leader like even visa and mastercard they are duopolies and they are like one in like a chain of seven different companies that happen every single time you press pay nothing's going to change though for a very long time it's extremely very very slow moving and different parts of the chain move at different speeds um like how you just said like in india they implemented a brand new piece of regulation that all the banks have to follow that you have to authenticate every single recurring payment so recurring payments in stripe just just plummeted just because you have to request an authorization every single time. And it's just bonkers. No, yeah. We're going to continue to see fragmentation and it'll be up to, and it'll be up to like central middleware, like Stripe to put the glue and glue it all together. I think that's a, a great question and answer to finish on. So I just want to say thank you very much, Shay, for joining us. Had a really good time talking to you today, um, as always. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, No, no, thank yeah. you. We'll be back for uh, more interviews like this with Ramen Club Pods very soon. So thank you very much.